0: Welcome to the State of Research podcast, brought to you by the Office of the Vice President for Research at Colorado State University. I'm your host, Mason Force, and with this podcast, I hope to bring to light the world renowned research that takes place here at CSU. By interviewing researchers, we can demonstrate how discovering answers to complex questions is a journey filled with unique stories. Throughout this podcast, I hope you'll be inspired by these stories of determination and innovation that propel us into the future. This is the State of Research. On this episode, I have the exciting opportunity to interview Dr. Jan Leach about her research into maintaining and protecting our global food supply. Dr. Leach is the Research Associate Dean of CSU's College of Agricultural Sciences and a leading researcher in the field of agricultural biosecurity. Would you mind telling us, just, just in a broad sense, uh, to as somebody who hasn't heard of it before, what is the nature of your research here at CSU? Mm-hmm.
1: So I study how plants, either are susceptible to diseases, so bacteria, viruses, fungi, the same things that affect humans and cause diseases in humans also cause diseases in plants. In agriculture, something like 40% of the losses worldwide are caused by diseases of plants. So in my laboratory we study how to either make the plants resistant to the diseases, the pathogens, But we also try to understand how the pathogens cause disease. Because if we understand how the pathogens cause the disease, or what are the virulence factors that the pathogens have, we can then figure out a way to thwart that in the plants, how to make the plants resist the pathogens.
0: Okay, so this is about designing plants, say, like genetic modification.
1: We use genetic modification and Mm -hmm. genome editing as a research tool in order to Mm -hmm. understand how to, if we knock this gene out in the plant, does it make the plant more susceptible or more resistant? If we add a gene to the plant, does it make the plant more resistant or susceptible? But we don't have to use genome editing or genetic modification for all of our experiments. For many of our experiments, we just do classic breeding or crossing of the plant. So if you cross a resistant plant with a susceptible plant and you know which genes are moving Mm -hmm. in that cross, then you can also design resistance in that way. So yes, we do use genome editing and we do use genetic engineering. It's one of the tools that we use.
0: Uh, help me understand, just how big of a threat is plant disease to our global food supply? Is this something we have to constantly worry about?
1: It is, so especially in the developing world, but even in, in the U.S., in the modern world, plant disease or insect pressure on plants also, so insects and diseases work together, can significantly impact crop productivity. And it depends on the crop and it depends on the pathogen or the insects. So. Worldwide, 40% losses due to diseases and pests. 40% loss is pretty significant. Even in the U.S., that's significant. But, for example, if you are a resource-poor farmer in the developing world, in part of India or China or whatever, Mm -hmm. it can be a significant loss to you to have 10 to 15% because you have only a small piece of land, you're trying to Mm -hmm. produce enough food for your family for the year, it's a significant problem. One of the things that historically people have asked us is, well, can't you just spray it with something, some chemical or something? But for many diseases, first of all, um, it's not economically feasible for Mm -hmm. a small farmer to do that. So what we found historically is that the most ecologically sound and environmentally friendly way to protect a plant from a disease is by introducing disease resistance or genes that confer resistance. And like I said, that can be done by traditional breeding practices. We've been breeding for thousands of years. Mm -hmm. Or it can be done by the modern technologies which help us to introduce those genes more specifically, more quickly, through either genetic engineering or genome editing.
0: Do you work in just crops in general, or do you specialize in a few of them?
1: I do work in crops in general, but I really specialize on rice. And I do some work with wheat, but my real, what I'm known for is my work in rice. I work in rice because it's the staple food for half the world's population. Yeah. It's a very important crop, it's also a very interesting crop to work with because of the nature of the diseases it gets and how we can control those diseases. It's a good model system for other grain crops, so wheat is a grain crop, it's related to rice distantly, but wheat is very complicated. It has, it's a hexaploid, it has six genomes associated with it. So. Figuring out how the inheritance occurs in those genomes is really crazy complicated. But rice is what we call a diploid, it's like you and I. We only have to deal with two genomes when we're doing crosses, and that's much simpler for us to work with.
0: So you start with rice, and then you move on to, say, more complicated. Exactly.
1: We, we figure things out in rice, and then we can apply that same knowledge to other crops, like
0: wheat. Okay. Like I actually don't know a whole lot about how Uh, rice is cultivated. Oh,
1: rice is fascinating. Mm -hmm. Rice is a crop that usually we, when you see it grown, it's grown in uh, climates where it's Mm -hmm. high humidity and very very warm, and it's often grown in standing water. So they flood the paddies of where they grow the rice. The reason they do that isn't because rice necessarily needs to stand in water to grow and produce. It's because standing water will keep the weeds down because the rice Mm. has evolved to be able to grow in standing water whereas many of the weeds are not. So that's one of the reasons that it's traditionally grown in standing water. More and more with water becoming a critical resource we're seeing that rice is being produced in dry land conditions uh, with or with minimal standing water just puddled. And that brings whole new problems to the table. So new disease problems, new weed pressures that we have to learn how to deal with as we change the management practice for rice. Mm. And we haven't figured those out yet.
0: (laughs) Always something to look forward to, right?
1: I always have a job.
0: (laughs) Speaking of jobs, how exactly did you get involved with this one?
1: Yeah, so I've been in academia for over 30 years. I started out in Kansas State University as a professor studying rice. And uh, then I moved to Colorado about fourteen years ago and uh, continued to study diseases of rice and also some insect interactions with wheat. Then recently took on the role as associate dean for research. In a sense, the idea behind that is I can help other people understand or pull teams together to solve big critical problems to agriculture. We've got a lot of grand challenges that we face in agriculture, and we're interested in identifying teams of people with different expertise. So maybe a soil scientist works with a plant pathologist, which is what I am, to help solve some of these problems, because we know that the interactions between plants and pathogens, for example, are impacted by the climate, they're impacted by the soil, they're impacted by how close you grow the plants. And we need to understand that whole system in order to solve the problems of agriculture. So building teams that look at this as a system is important to us.
0: So do you think it's sustainable the way we currently do agriculture?
1: It depends on where you're talking. I mean, the question is a good question. Can we sustain large cropping systems the way we've produced it? Another way to look at that question is, can we afford not to? Um, we have a growing <laughs> population. We've got to feed that population by a plot, growing things on small plots, and you know, using whatever practice you can to to grow it. But um, we do need to think about, not necessarily just high-yielding crops, but nutritious crops and things that are much more healthy to eat. To do that in a sustainable way, we need to be very careful. We need to protect our soil. We need to protect our environment. A farmer can't afford to just pull nutrients out of the soil all the time and assume that he's going to be sustainable and that he's going to have a farm in the future because he has to take care of that soil, you have to nurture Mm -hmm. it. One of the reasons that we're now looking at farming and researching these systems as a system is that we need to think about how do I produce nutritious and healthy foods for a population while protecting my soil so that for the future populations I can still do that. We have to think about how do I protect the microbiome in the soil? How do I protect the water that's running off of my fields from contamination? And I think in order to do the intensive agriculture that we have to do to feed people, we have to think about how do we do that in a sustainable way. It's going to involve integrated practices. You can't go totally organic. It would be wonderful Mm. if we could, but I don't think we could go totally organic. But we can be mindful and very careful and more precise about what we do use to control weeds in our agricultural systems. So we don't have to spray the whole field. We might be able just to spray one weed at a time. On insecticides, we may be able to be more precise about how we apply them. Fertilizers, we may be able to add the right amount of nutrients in the right place at the right time rather than going in and spraying you know, the whole field with a higher concentration. So being smarter about how we do agriculture will take us a long way in the future.
0: It's gonna have to. (laughs) It's gonna have to, exactly. So getting back to your own research, Mm -hmm. have you looked into or discovered anything that struck you as surprising, as unexpected?
1: Every day. (laughs) (laughs) So for example, one of the things that I mentioned we're interested in the whole system of agriculture. So Mm -hmm. we started to, bearing in mind that we're seeing these shifts in the climate, these really high shifts towards higher temperatures, less Mm -hmm. water. We started to ask the question a number of years ago, well, what impact will that have? I told you I work with disease resistance. So if the temperatures are climbing and we've been breeding these resistance genes in and they've been very effective in controlling diseases, what happens if the temperature rises in the countries where rice is produced? And I'm not even giving you a hypothetical. It's been documented that in parts of Asia where rice is heavily produced and is a major food crop, that there's been a a one-degree increase in the temperature over the last fifty years. Importantly, that one-degree shift shows up at night, which is a very important time in a rice plant when it's setting its seed, and so they've documented that with increasing temperatures we're seeing lower yields in rice the other problem is is that with increasing temperatures the rice patties where the rice is grown the water where the rice is grown you're seeing higher emissions of greenhouse gases uh, methane from the patties we ask the question well what's happening to the pathogen plant interaction when we have a resistant interaction or when we have a susceptible interaction and the frightening thing is is that most of the sources of resistance that we have in rice to a particular pathogen that I work with a bacterial pathogen are ineffective at high temperatures
0: so moving forward climate change is going to make
1: it's going to have a huge
0: impact more susceptible the
1: plants in fact the plants are not only mm. more susceptible in general at high temperatures to this disease But the resistance that we have fails at high temperature. Mm. So that wasn't necessarily so surprising. So we looked at many of these resistance genes that we've put in rice for these particular pathogens, and we found one out of twenty that we looked at that actually is more effective at high temperature. Now we want to understand.
0: Let's look into that one. (laughs) Exactly.
1: Why is it more resistant at high temperatures? And why is it more effective? And can we figure that out so that we can help bring the other genes along for the future? So, in your question about sustainability, we have to think okay, we can grow rice and protect it from this disease now, but what about the future? What about changing temperatures? What about when the pathogen changes and gets more aggressive on those? So the surprise was that that particular gene was a really effective gene, and now the question is why? And what can we do to make the plants more resilient in the future than they are now?
0: Yeah. Well, I hadn't considered that Yeah, Plant disease and susceptibilities is not just about right now. It's, is it going to continue to work? <laughs>
1: yeah, <laughs> it I is. I mean, that's a big question. Are mm-hmm. we going to be able to continue to protect our plants into the future with the strategies that we're mm-hmm. taking now? And that was a real eye-opener that the environment is changing. I need to adapt plants to better fit into that environment. You know, it's not only uh, about disease. The question also is, is... Will the rice that we have now, or the wheat, or the corn, mm-hmm. produce in the changed environment that we're facing? And uh, I once had a person say to me, Well, if the temperatures get hotter in Colorado, just move north with the crop. <laughs> well, the crops were adapted to Colorado soils, Colorado conditions. And if you move the crops up to, you know, northern Montana or Canada or whatever, They may not do as well because Mm -hmm. the soils aren't the same, the conditions, the moisture conditions aren't the same. So it's not just about moving. It's about figuring out what makes that crop produce well under those conditions.
0: So you mentioned you had the opportunity to travel quite Mm -hmm. a bit. That must be fascinating.
1: Yeah, so for years I was part of a course that we ran at the International Rice Research Institute, which is sort of the mecca for rice research Mm -hmm. in the Philippines. And we would take U.S. students or participants who had never really seen rice production and had never been outside the U.S. in some cases, and they would do everything from plow with a water buffalo to molecular breeding. So wow, that was the full ratings. It was a, a wonderful experience and they enjoyed it. So we're now actually at this very moment working to develop a class like that in Africa. It'll be a little bit different than that class. It won't be solely focused on rice and it'll be introducing young scholars into how do you discuss things like genetic modification or genome editing. What's the difference between a genetically engineered crop plant and a genome edited crop plant? How do I have those discussions to understand without being bullied, is this good or bad? And have that discussion in an international group. So there will be students from different parts of Africa, from different parts of Europe, and different parts of the United States talking together and developing podcasts and uh, white papers on uh, how do I have this discussion? What are the facts and how do I come to conclusions on whether these are good things or bad things in an era when we know we need to produce a large amount of food? Let's see, now you've
0: gotten me curious. Uh, What what exactly is the difference between a, uh, what was it, a genetically...
1: Engineered and Hmm. a genome-edited. So, in fact, the next meeting I have is a discussion of that. Okay. So genome editing is a new technology. You've Mm -hmm. heard of CRISPR-Cas. Maybe it's on everybody's tongues these Mm -hmm. days. Think about if you have a page of text and you see you have a typo or an error in one letter in one word and you need to change that. You can go in and erase it and retype over that and have it be corrected. So in genome editing uh, the discovery was that there are ways that you can get, you can put the tools into a, a plant cell that will enable it to correct or change one letter or two letters or three letters in a word in a mm-hmm. gene, and you can do that in a way that there's no foreign DNA introduced because you're using the cell's machinery <laughs> to correct or to replace that word. So. The distinction that people use between genome editing, which is just that—you edited the genome just like you would a word in a piece of text—versus genetic engineering is, in genetic engineering traditionally, we have taken a gene from some other plant or animal or whatever and put it into our plant. It doesn't have to be from a, another plant. It could be rice to rice, mm-hmm. but we've taken a gene, cloned it and reintroduced it or introduced it into a new plant or animal, whatever you're doing. And so there's a foreign piece of DNA in that plant, whereas with genome editing, the plant did it itself. The distinction that is used is that genome editing is not the introduction of foreign DNA
0: it sounds more more graceful almost well it is it's
1: uh, and and it's amazing how well it works in many systems it was unheard of in the past it allows for you to edit or clean up or change single nucleotides a couple of nucleotides not even a whole gene it's a very precise tool now genetic engineering is precise but you're putting a piece of foreign DNA. And when we do breeding or crossing, you're scrambling genomes. So do you have brothers and sisters? Yes. Do they look like you? Uh, sort of? Yeah. But not not identical?
0: No, no, there's <laughs> definitely some resemblance. That's
1: because the genomes of your parents were mm-hmm. scrambled when the cross was made. In plants, we can control those crosses better, but still you, you don't just get brown eyes. Mm. You get blue eyes, green eyes, you know, you can get all different shades of eyes. Breeding is not precise. You don't change just one gene. You change thousands of genes when you breed. Mm. So when we try to do a cross to add a disease-resistance gene, which is what I try to do, we don't just get that gene. We get a whole lot of other things coming in. And then we have to figure out how to get rid of all that other stuff. We call that genetic drag. It brings in things that we don't want.
0: Almost like side effects? Yeah, mm -hmm.
1: absolutely. We get a lot of things we don't want coming in. So Mm -hmm. now we have to go through a lot of years of work to get rid of that. Mm But the nice thing about genome editing or genetic engineering is you don't get all that other drag. So that's why, for a scientist, it's much more precise to do either one of those two techniques. And you could argue that because you're not bringing in some external DNA, it's even more precise in the genome editing cases. But the distinction is pretty slight in a sense. That's why people would like to use the more precise technologies.
0: That makes sense. Yeah. So moving forward what other things are you you trying to accomplish right now? Like what would you like to see happen over the next couple of years? Mm
1: -hmm. So what I am a big proponent of in my area Mm -hmm. of study is instead of just looking at a pathogen in a plant looking at the system and so I've been doing a lot of policy work Mm -hmm. you know around what we call the phytobiome and understanding not just the plant and one organism, but the plant and insects and soil and environment, understanding that system so that we can be more precise in how we manage plant health and agriculture. It's a difficult thing to do because, you know, the microbiome is difficult to study in and of itself and how that influences the plant and how that influences the pathogen and the plant interaction and how that influences the insect plant pathogen interaction. It's all connected. It's all connected. We have the resources and the technology to do that now uh, and to begin to answer those questions in a much much more effective way that can guide us to crop improvement and it can guide us to new management practices in the field.
0: This isn't A relatively new field. Like you said, they've they've been crossing plants for We've been crossing plants for thousands
1: of years. When a farmer would go out in the field and he would see that this pea plant, for example, Mm. produced better, bigger peas, he might collect that plant and propagate it the next year. So farmers have been selecting for good better crops for years and years and years. And then people figured out how do I help improve that? How do I genetically cross those plants in order to bring the good genes and, you know, I might have a really tasty strawberry here, but I want it to be bigger. Mm-hmm. So cross the plants and get a big tasty strawberry. So we've known for many years how to do that, and we've been doing it for many years. But we now need to think beyond bigger, better, tastier, we need to think about healthier. How do I make a more nutritious crop? How do I bring all these things to the table? And how do I bring disease resistance? And you know, plant breeders have a lot in their heads. They have to watch for all these different traits moving into a plant. It's very complicated and anything we can do to simplify it and make it go faster, which is what we need to do to keep up with our cultural demands. I think anything we can do that still leans towards sustainability and is safe I think we need to do
0: that. Sounds like you guys are doing some pretty important stuff here. It's fun. Yeah. We have fun. So I think that was a great conversation. I really Mm -hmm. appreciated all the excellent information. Thank you. I wish you best of luck with your future research.
1: Thank you. It's been a pleasure.
0: And that's all we have for today. We were truly honored to feature Dr. Leach on the show, and I hope you found our conversation about the importance and challenges of agricultural biosecurity as fascinating as I did. Until next time on The State of Research.